This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by the Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning. Hi, everybody. My name is Alexis Boylan. I am a professor of art history and Africana studies at the University of Connecticut and the director of academic affairs for the University of Connecticut's Humanities Institute. And I am thrilled today to be with you for a conversation as part of our Seeing Truth series. Before we get started, I also wanted to, as usual, thank the Luce Foundation for generously supporting both the programming associated with Seeing Truth and the exhibition that is forthcoming in January. Let's get started. So So I hate doing introductions. I find that I always botch them up and then I actually don't ever get the person really full, like fully sort of embodied. So would you like to introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? What's your story? Sure. Great. It's good good to be here. My name is Stefan Alexander and I'm a professor of physics focusing on, you know, everything theoretical physics at Brown University. I'm also a musician and uh, from time to time I write books. Okay. What do you play? I play mainly the tenor saxophone and sometimes the soprano. So I have a question. They always tell kids that like you should take that, like the way that they now seem to convince people to do art is through this idea that it will make you good at STEM. Do you, do you subscribe to these theories? Does your, does your music making help your, your STEM brain or are, are these things is this an improper way to even think about it? I just, I feel like it's the way that as, as an art historian, there's always this sort of like suggestion that it's not enough to study art history. You have to do it for like some other reason. So I was just wondering what came, how the music wraps around with the physics for you. Yeah, that's, I've, I've, I've wondered about that myself. Even tried to write a book, even wrote a book about some of that. But I would say that Insofar as music engages your creativity, it also engages, I guess, you know, a sense of, especially if you're practicing your instrument, some sense of discipline. I lack that a lot. I lack focus. So for me, you know, engaging with my instrument that way, yeah, I do feel that it's helped some aspects of my, of my, my physics, but it's hard to really articulate how. Okay. Right. Right. 
So I wanted to start off chatting about your book. As I was saying before we started our interview, I'm like a mega fan of, of this book in particular and, and your ideas and work. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit for those who haven't read it. And, and if you haven't heard about it or read it, you need to go out immediately and buy the book and read it. It's spectacular. But can you talk to us a little bit about what the book is about and then how the book how you were looking to use this book as a way to contribute to both dialogues about physics and then also about race or about sort of corporeality, the personness of the people who have to study ideas. Hmm. Yeah, I think my way into that, well, I think part of the book was a recognition and a celebration of ideas that in physics, especially in physics and of course in science, that were maybe met with with stigma or even shame in the author of the ideas that actually turned out to be correct and turned out to actually even transform physics itself. And, you know, I talk about Michael Faraday, who was this British physicist that at the time had an idea that was so laughable, it was even called idiotic. And, you know, he suffered a lot just personally from the fact that with those ideas of the invisible field lines that turned out to be, you know, embraced by James Clark Maxwell and turned out to be true. And now actually is the underlying paradigm of our physical reality, the idea of the quantum field. So like, you know, I, I talk about examples of that form to kind of inspire both myself and, and, and the reader that it's okay to, and that, that, you know, not only should we not run away from those these types of musings or ideas, but we should actually embrace it as part of the creative process. And, and basically, how, do, you know, how does one navigate that? How does one deal with the, you know, the fear of getting kicked out of the club? And in academia, especially these days, things become more siloed. The disciplines become more well-defined and well, the more well-defined uh, boundaries. There's a, a currency, for lack of a better word, or, you know, of, of, stick with the club and you will, you know, be rewarded. And if you veer away from the club, you, you know, then you may not get funded, you may not get promoted. So, you know, you may not be respected. And so I kind of you know, talked about that in the book and, you know, went into how I actually navigated that personally. And yeah, there's a lot more there. <laughs> I just don't want to take up too much time talking about that. But right, right. I'm actually interested. I'm gonna I'm gonna push you a little bit to talk about creativity because I think one of the things that particularly for someone who's outside of, of science altogether, I thought what was really interesting is that the whole book has a kind of really an anxious plea for thinking differently about creativity. And at one point you actually call it the art of theoretical physics. And so I was wondering if you could talk talk a little bit about this idea of art for you. Like what is what is it that art contributes? What is it that that word means to you? And I was specifically thinking here, there's a chapter in this book called If Basquiat Were a Physicist. Again, because I, I think that there's many times in the book where you look to visual or musical creativities to try to give some sense of something that seems... And, and again, this was just my reading that seems to be absent or feared in sort of physics thinking. So I was just sort of wondering about this, this sort of problem of creativity. And partially, I, I will just sort of set you up just so you know, a lot of the other scientists have sort of suggested 
not that there's no creativity in science, but some of the other people we've talked to have sort of suggested that creativity is maybe at the boundaries of scientific investigation or that that can come in with like later interpretations, but that data, that, that there's something actually real or true at a core and then creativity exists. You know, so I sort of made this like a Venn diagram of sort of science and art and that there's a lot of scientists who argue that it would be nice if they connected, but they don't. So you clearly don't think that way. So I was wondering if you could puzzle that out for our listeners and viewers a little bit. Yeah. So by analogy, like, for example, if I'm playing Mary Had a Little, little Lamb with my, sa- with my sax, you know, a few notes. And I think where the creativity comes in is that, you know, it's not, a, for me, it's not either or. The notion, let's say, of logic or rigor and creativity, I mean, you have these notions of these domains. For me, it's not an either or, it's a both, right? I mean, like, and I think it's also a sense for me that like, yeah, I mean, like with enough practice and with enough time commitment, right? I believe that one can develop, you know, the rigor and the logic and the math and the skill set and the technique. And we all have our own ways into that. They're not just, it's not, one way of realizing those things. And I think that that's a, and, you know, that's always been a mistake. I think a lot of, a lot of people and teachers and students and the system, the educational system, some, somehow presumes that there's a few way into that. I believe that there are many ways into acquiring that. And that's the first thing. But let's say I know, the, and I have memorized the notes of Mary Had a Little Lamb. I mean, creativity comes in for me as how I play it. Maybe I, you know, I add some my own personality into that. So I think that there's a notion of, you know, the, you know, your personality, your voice. And I think that one way I like to think about this was when I was a postdoc at a place in the West Coast, my advisor was known to be, he was actually known to be my, you know, the, one of the master crafts people, okay, of our field. And I was scared of him for that reason, <laughs> because, you know, he just knew so much more than I did. Three years into my postdoc, um, I was struggling. He saw that I was struggling with something technical. And in the kindest way, and this is, I can put it, I mean, he was known to be rough around the edges too, but in the kindest way, he said to me, you know, you are to learn this so that one day soon, (laughs) hopefully, you can do with it what you want. You can create with this, what your ideas, your own ideas. So to me, that's kind of like how I see in part, the creativity come into place. It's like, we want to, you know, acquire a knowledge base so that we can create with it, so that we can, we can you know, make our own things with it, right? And so, yeah. And in terms of like, I think the, the notion of creativity is boundless. I mean, it, 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 by definition, I think the word to, you know, the notion of creating is like you're making something new or you're adding something, a different twist to the thing that already exists. And that's and the, other, the, the third thing is that when I think about Ornett Coleman, I mean, when he you know, really pioneered free jazz, you know, at the time, I mean, it was laughable by a lot of people. To find that much later on, you have places like Jazz at Lincoln Center actually playing his music and composing and arranging his music, right? What came first, his creativity or the fact that you can notate and, you know, write down his music as an afterthought and memorize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I'm interested, though, because it does seem a little bit like you do find that 
having some antagonism towards creativity or having some sort of like is actually that that you, you in the book you talk a lot about being very frustrated at the outsider phenomenon and yet it does sort of seem that the outsider phenomenon can be liberating right that sort of it it, it allows a creativity that that I think maybe group acceptance doesn't seem to allow for. I mean, and again, I'm talking here in a sort of like not in a, you know, clearly in a sort of less sort of societal, prejudicial, racist, homophobic sense, but more in just, does it give you a little energy to feel like that that creativity is yours, that there's an ownership of it and that it is a little bit a resistance to a monolith? Yeah, this is a fine, this is, I think, a, the idea of what I taught, what I call, you know, some people in the book, we call it positive deviance or active deviance rather than, you know, it is true that like, you know, if there are certain social tags or I, I don't know, situations that naturally place you culturally, let's say, as an outsider in a particular group. I mean, so, and what I'm talking about, let's talk about in the scientific enterprise, a research group or a particular department, and you are like, you know, you're just really culturally just different. And, and when I say culture, I also mean like, you know, maybe it's a recognition that a lot of science is also happening in, through informal networks and informal communication and friendships. And, and because it's in those spaces that people are allowed to just like not, not feel judged and then, you know, really not edit what they have to say as much. And it's usually that unedited forms of communication where ideas can maybe, you know, transpire or new ideas can come about. But if you're not comfortable, if you, if you feel a fear or like, you know, that if you are too much yourself or too loose in your language or because, because you are, I mean, you know, I mean, there's some notion of like the concept of stereotype threat here. That if I, if I am like, I'm, I might be hyper aware of the, how I'm being stereotyped. Black people can't do math as well. I don't know, but like, so I'm less, you know, willing to go on a blackboard and make a mistake in that way because, because of this internal fear. I think that like, you know, recognizing the advantages also, you know, if you are the insider that you, you're, you're not as, you know, you're, you're more, I don't know, you, you feel less judged in these interactions. But the flip side is, if you are the in, an insider, and let's say you do have an idea that, or a thought or a technique or what have you, that is, that challenges, so to speak, the status quo, you may, you, you may be afraid and fear of being kicked out of the club or the, the, the leisure of being in that club, not, you know, not explore that. But, you know, if I'm an outsider and I know I'm an outsider and I know like there's very little I can do to be accepted, then I, I, I have to worry less about that. Right. I have to right. worry less about being kicked out of the club. So my, my message is therefore embrace it. In other words, yes, it does suck. There are things about being an outsider that is emotionally not cool and what have you, but there's a flip side of it, which right. is, you know, that therefore I don't really have much to prove and I can, freely there for more freely explore these ideas that would have gotten an insider kicked out of the club. Well, right. it's not going to get me kicked out of the club because I'm already outside the club. Right. And so with that recognition, it's allowed me to actually over the years pursue ideas without worry of, you know, about being kicked out of the club because in some respects I'm not in the club. Right. And, but let me say another word. Let me, that is not, 
at some point in my past, there was a notion of feeling bitter about that and having a sense of defiance. Mm-hmm. My, that's not my relationship to, to this anymore. I, I don't feel defiant. I don't feel like I'm going to show these people wrong kind of thing. It's more like, wow, like, you know, it's, I'm, I'm kind of part in the, in the story of, 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 of science. I'm a part of this story in, in that way, that there have been others like me who were not like, you know, always in the club and still made their way, still found a way to, to pursue ideas and to, you know, and to make a contribution. And I feel like I'm part of that bigger story or mm-hmm. me, me and the, whoever my colleagues who feel this way, but it's not out of like defined. So I'm going to, you know, it's me versus them. I feel still feel very much that I'm part of the scientific community and the scientific community needs actors like, like, like these to forward the science. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I do think that you also make a really convincing <coughs> case that if there are not changes, that we are not going to get the answers that we want if we continue in a very sort of narrow view, that we need to think better. I do think physics has always been perhaps the most sort of humanistic because the questions are so big. They bleed so easily into philosophy and, you know, what is the nature of our existence and and these kinds of questions, which have often been understood as the sort of domain of the humanities. But one of the things I found really interesting, and and I say this as somebody who was actually terrified to read your book because I actually am terrified of physics because I had a terrible experience as a student very early on. And that part of it was about this idea that I simply could not see the logics of physics. I was like in 10th grade. It took me a long time to sort of come to terms with that I probably, it had nothing to do with physics. It had to do with all these other sort of things that I was like one of the only two women in the class that it was, you know, that, that, that there was this very sort of, you must sort of, you, you must bend to physics as opposed to sort of imagining that physics could be a, an embraceable way of thinking or having options. One of the things I think is really fascinating is you really do emphasize sociability. And you mentioned this before, and this idea of like all of us have lives and all of us have friends and all of us want connections. And that that actually can't be undermined when we think about like how we discover knowledge or how we think about knowledge. There's a lot about this book that's very personal about your life and your relationships and your growing up and your relationship to physics. You make physics a character that you have an evolving relationship with. And I just was sort of wondering, like, what what do you, what do you want to break or to shift or to change with that sort of the narrativizing of physics in this way? There's lots of diagrams and graphs and there's lots of sort of hard science. There's lots of math. This isn't a memoir per se, but you do this really interesting balancing act. And I was sort of just wanting you to talk a little bit about sort of what happens when you talk about knowledge as personal and embodied. And, and what was your sort of thinking about that? It's a very long-winded question for you. <laughs> yeah, when I think about like my dear friendships, you know, well, some of them are people who are non-physicists, but they, 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 they really are hungry for conversations about physics. And there's usually some exchange of, of information. So I have some like artist friends who, they're kind of brilliant in that way. They're very intuitive and they want to talk physics. They have an idea they want to share with me, a new way of thinking about it. But also I have an interest in their art maybe. And then we find some, some way of exchanging information. 
But notice that, you know, the act of me explaining my physics to them deepens because it gives me a different modality to, to, to sort of process information that could be sometimes very abstractly, you know, internalized in my head or even mathematically. And the act of now communicating that to someone and trying to get that idea across um, really does help me have a, a deeper understanding or, a, you know, or you know, a, a multidimensional understanding of, of something, right? So another friendship is, you know, so I have a few colleagues or even like students who are now, they've finished their PhD, they're, they're, they're doing research and they now become collaborators of mine. And, you know, those friendships are great friendships actually, because we spend a lot of our time socializing, right? In the context of discussing physics. So, you know, so it's sort of like I sit down, you know, over some coffee with, a young collaborator, and we're talking about the scattering matrix or something like that, right? And we're doing that, we're, we're struggling with a calculation and we're, and that's the object of the friendship. That is the, that is the dessert of, with the, that goes along with the coffee. And I think that that, like, you know, it's in those ways and that kind of more personal modality, right? Of engaging and playing with the physics, mm -hmm. right? You're playing in the sandbox, you're exploring together, and again, because it's happening in that context, you're not feeling judged if you make a mistake, if you have the wrong assign error, right? The, the point is that that's not preventing you from, you know, from pushing, that, from pushing on with the research project. Right. So when I look at like, you know, how physics is done, a lot of it is done that way. We have our communities, we have our, our, our relationships, and we transfer as human beings, we, we, we translate and we, you know, engage and we play. So if you're, if you're left out of that, then all of a sudden, then the science becomes something else to you. The last thing I'll say there, you know, meditation is an example for me. You know, there are some forms of meditation where you do it in a group, mm -hmm. but then there are some forms of it where you do it by yourself, where you're spending time with yourself. And that's also a very personal activity. So there are times where, you know, I spend time with myself, with my physics. That's also, I think, a personal thing, right? right? So yeah, that's my best way of addressing your question. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. No, as I said, I really, I, I love this sort of idea because I also think there's so much about our popular culture that encourages us to think about scientists as loners, as working in isolation, to sort in of imagine. Impersonal and like, you know, right. kind of like robots and, you right. know, but it's the same emotional sort of life. It's the flip side of, I think, a dialogue. And you had mentioned this earlier about artists as somehow being, you know, always partying, 
alcoholics, you know, and then just like rolling out of bed and just like throwing paint or sculpting something or having some sort of like, as if there aren't years of practice and study and discipline and all of these other things. And that sometimes it is sociable and sometimes it is isolating and sometimes it is deeply personal. But I think that you you do this really great job of sort of deteriorating a very generic idea of what work is and what scientific work has to be and and also helping us I think really see what some of the because with that sociability are the impediments that our society has to sort of recognizing different kinds of scientific modalities different people and what different people have to sort of offer I I love your segue about meditation because I wanted to ask you about dreams it might surprise the listener that there's so much about dreams are you a big dreamer do you remember your dreams do you write them down like what 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 are, what are dreams in your sort of personal life and then how does that relate to the way you use dreams in fear of a black universe? Yeah. So, you know, dreaming for me is, it is a part of my, my process or my strategy of research. I mean, like, so, you know, I guess usually what happens is if I'm, you know, working on a problem so in deeply that sometimes if I'm lucky, it will present itself to me in a dream, some aspects of the problem. And, and if I remember the dream, I definitely will like the next day, try to Usually I'll try to draw an image because usually these dreams reveal themselves as images. And at the very least of what, what the way the dream really functions is usually as a vindication that I may be on the right track to something. So again, it's more like, okay, you know, I, I dismissed this idea or I thought it was, there was nothing to it. But the fact that I dreamt about it means that my subconscious is processing this thing in a way that's not trivial. And I should just continue to pursue this. And then, you know, you, you, you wait and you hope and you continue to work that something breaks through and you're able to, you know, make, you know, progress on the, pro on the problem. So, so usually, yeah, it, it, focus, it functions as some form of vindication or inspiration to continue working on the problem. You know, there have been, you know, accounts in history, in the history of science where, breakthroughs major breakthroughs happen because of dreams mm -hmm. i've been lucky once or twice not the breakthrough hasn't been as big but i've had my own breakthroughs because of dreams so yeah it is it is part of my strategy for lack of a better word my palette of different ways into trying to solve a problem fabulous we have been ending all of the interviews with the question about one truth that you know i i will warn you some people refuse to answer this question because they don't believe in truth or they don't want to commit to a truth and then some people want to answer this question and give me like five truths but so those are all the ways out of this question but what the question is is that can you tell me one thing that you know is true and then how do you know that this is true and what evidence do you have of its truth for you? That's a good question about, you know, what is true? You know, there's so many, there's so many truths out there. Or are there none? That's the other, that's the other answer that a lot of people come up with. <laughs> well, I, I would say that. It can also be your truth. Like, so what is your truth? Like, it doesn't have to be, people have, have taken the question in different ways. You can say it's a universalizing truth or a personal truth. I mean, theoretically, a truth would be both personal and universal, but you can twist the question any way you want. Well, I think that, you know, one truth to me is while it's not, it, it wasn't obvious to us in terms of our direct experience, 
is that space and time can be warped and bent, right? That space is not this empty stage, but it's actually, you know, a field that can be warped and bent. And we now know that because we have now discovered black holes and we discovered a black hole at the center of, of our own galaxy visually, and that the black hole is actually a manifestation of the bending of space-time. There's no way to explain the existence of a black hole, but by the, the warping of space-time around the black hole, such that any light that's being emitted from it just falls back into the black hole. Hence, we call it a black hole. Right. All right. That's your truth. I love it. Fantastic. Stefan, it was wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much. And I hope you will come out perhaps and see Seeing Truth. And again, for everyone in our audience listening and watching, this book is spectacular and holidays are coming up and I can't think of anything better to give anybody than a little bit of the meaning of life and knowledge and what we are to each other and the universe. Thank you so much, Stefan. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a special Seeing Truth episode of the Why We Argue podcast, Future of Truth edition. Many thanks to Toby Napolitano at the University of California, Merced, who handles our sound. And thanks to our sponsors, the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network.